Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, More than a dozen Republican-controlled state legislatures have passed or are promoting bills targeting transgender youth. A new poll reveals that 75% of people of faith support protections against LGBTQ discrimination. And President Biden nominates the first openly gay head of Customs and Border Protection. It's our LGBTQ roundtable. Who carries that burden of representation? Do we expect directors of color to tell stories about their own communities. We never hold white artists, white directors to account in the same way. Later in the show, a potential nine firsts for Asians in this year's Oscars, as well as historic nominations for other people of color. Is this the first real response to Oscars So White? But first, joining me remotely, Grace Sterling Stowell, Executive Director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, or Bagley. Welcome, Grace. Hi, Callie. Glad to be here today. Glad to have you. E.J. Graff, journalist, author, and managing editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. Hello, E.J. Hey, Callie. And Jansen Wu, executive director of GLAD, GLBTQ, Legal Advocates and Defenders. Welcome, Jansen. Thank you so much for having me. All right, let's just dive right into the state bills. By one count, it's up to 28, but you know, it keeps fluctuating. But the bottom line is that all of them are targeted at transgender youth, either questioning their right to have gender-affirming treatments or limiting their ability to participate in sports. It seems to fall into two categories. Before we start, let's take a listen to a couple of parents who've been testifying around the country against these restrictive laws. So first, here's Missouri dad Brandon Bulware testifying against the state's bill to limit young transgender athletes' ability to participate in sports. I need you to understand that this language, if it becomes law, will have real effects on real people. It will affect my daughter. It will mean she cannot play on the girls' volleyball team or dance squad or tennis team. I ask you, please don't take that away from my daughter. And here's Texas mom Amber Briggle testifying against a bill that would classify parents supporting gender-affirming treatments for transgender kids as child abuse. Taking that support away from him, or worse, taking him away from his family because we broke the law to provide that support will have devastating and heartbreaking consequences. Vote no to SB 1646 and SB 1311, because if these bills become law, that, senators, is child abuse. So I wanted listeners to hear what the parents are saying on behalf of their children so that you get a real sense of what's at stake. We should say that in one of the most reported bills in Arkansas, the governor decided to veto that bill 
and then the legislature overrode his veto. And we've just learned that another governor, this time in North Dakota, Doug Burgum, has vetoed the bill there that would prohibit transgender girls from playing sports as their gender. Don't know if this can be overridden as well, but that's where we are. So let's start with you, Jansen. Well, I mean, what we're seeing is a coordinated attack on trans youth across the nation. And I say coordinated in that, you know, there are organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom, which kind of ships out these model legislations to advocates in states across the nation that are intended to create a wedge issue. And the unfortunate byproduct of that is that it really harms young transgender children who are experiencing gender dysphoria and need this life-saving medical care. And the truth of the matter is that this medical care is well-established, it's safe, and it's effective. And it gives these children a chance to live happy and healthy lives. Grace, um, I wonder if much of the legislation that's in place is based on just sheer lack of information. Uh, They seem weird. It's across the spectrum of limitations that don't seem to make any sense if you know how biology works. Or is this, from your vantage point, just plain old bias dressed up again? Well, absolutely. And, you know, as somebody who has been working with transgender uh, youth and young adults for over 40 years, and then I have my own experience growing up as a transgender young person in the 60s and 70s, you know, th- this is devastating. And I agree with the parents in the clips that there will be real consequences for real young people and their families, and it's devastating, and and it is abusive. Young people are who they are, and every young person deserves the right to safe and healthy care and, and to live their lives. And these bills are targeting one group of people where, where there is no problem. There, there's no problem. They're addressing something that is something that they've made up in their heads. And so it is biased, and, and more than that, it's really abusive to young people. And, and I just can only imagine and have, along with my own experience of being a young trans person and, and seeing and hearing that these kind of bills are being filed all across the country in an attempt to make their access to their own care and live their lives difficult or impossible. And Grace, just to be clear, we're not talking about huge numbers. Not that it matters one way or the other, but just to put this in some kind of perspective, I mean, from what researchers know about the numbers of kids who are trying to transition, it's not 50% of kids. Uh, it, It seems like a lot going against a very small group of people. Well, exactly. And so it becomes all the more devastating when I think of young people who are the most vulnerable and who are being targeted, you know, just unilaterally sort of pulled out among all other young people for their medical status. And so, again, young people don't see this as a problem and the communities don't think of it as a problem. But this is political. This is very clearly political. Hmm. EJ, what do you think the impact will be now that we're seeing some of the governors And be clear, these are Republican governors as well. These are Republican state legislatures who are promoting these bills. But these are Republican governors now, some of them, saying no. Will this stop this? What's your feeling? I want to add a little historical context to this. Both Jansen and Grace are focused very rightly on the young people. But 
This is a wave of symbolic laws about a mythical threat to incite a moral panic. And we have, all three of us have lived through those over the past 40 years. I remember the no promo homo laws in the 80s, the no equality laws in the 90s, the no marriage equality laws in the later 90s and early 2000s. These are ways that Republican legislatures try to distract from real concrete problems that are facing their citizens and say, don't look over there where the Texas electric grid failed, which is something that Amber Briggle, that woman you um, used a clip from, actually yelled at them about later in her testimony. Don't look at that. Don't look at our failure to protect you from COVID. Look over here. There's this mythical threat where a group of young people you will never meet, and so you can't have any feelings for them, are in theory threatening your ideas about men and women. And that's nonsense. And it works for a couple of years and then we win again. So as awful as it's going to be for the young people who are coming of age with this target on their backs, it's it feels very personal when it's happening. This is a wave and something else will replace it later. Kylie, can I add something to yes. that? Mm-hmm. I just want to really appreciate EJ's comments. I mean, I think back to 2004 when we lost, I mean, dozens and dozens of state referendum that banned marriage between same-sex couples. Then you look to 2015 with the Supreme Court's decision in Burgerfell, and people kind of forget the trajectory that our country went on from, you know, scapegoating to acceptance and affirmation. And, and so I do have hope right now that, you know, we will have a similar trajectory and that will be led by these amazing trans young advocates who are testifying. Imagine being a young person testifying in front of a legislative body about your own ability to get life-saving care or be able to participate like all your friends in sports, how terrifying that must be. But that is what's going to change hearts and minds going forward. And I just want to just name one of those young advocates, Sarah Huckman, who we actually have a number of these bills in New England. There are bans in New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Maine, and Connecticut to prohibit transgender girls from participating in sports. And Sarah Huckman, this one trans youth who participated in athletics, really important to her development, her confidence, to her teamwork in high school. And she's now actually at UNH, uh, but she testified and was instrumental in stopping that bill, at least for this session. Do you think the momentum is going the other way now because of these Republican governors saying something publicly and saying that they will veto a bill if it comes to them? I don't think the momentum has shifted yet, but I think this is my gut sense. I don't have personal information, but my sense is that these governors have been reached by individuals. There's someone in their family or friendship circle who is trans or has a trans child and they can't do it. They look at it and they say, oh, no, I can't stand up for this. And I think that these bills will keep on coming until until all the testimony that Jansen is talking about reaches more people. Jansen? I would just add that the good news is that recent polling has shown that across the political spectrum, people oppose these types of attacks when they really understand what they are about. And so we have to build on that base of support and make sure that it reaches the elected officials who, you know, are using this for political purposes, as Grace had mentioned. Unfortunately, in the meanwhile, 
the impact and the burdens will be felt by the young trans folks and particularly for those folks who are currently in medical care or are about to undergo medical care that's essential and life-saving, I really worry about their safety and well-being. Grace, what do you think the impact is of having all these parents? Now, Jansen talked about the young people themselves speaking up, which has got to be powerful. But these are parents who are not transgender themselves who are saying, I need for you all to understand what's happening here. What's that impact? Because you've been, as you've said, working with transgender youth for 40 years. So parents have necessarily become involved, many of them. Yes, parents are some of the most effective advocates, along with the young people themselves. Uh, We saw that in the Yes on 3 campaign a few years ago, where parents got involved in unprecedented numbers and spoke up. And there's something that resonates within mainstream, uh, even in the mainstream political world around when parents are speaking up on behalf of vulnerable young people and their willingness to come out and be visible uh, about the, the trans folks and their families, as well as the young people themselves, speaking of their own direct experience. So I, I think these are very powerful advocates and will continue to be so. And to echo both Jansen and AJ said, I agree. I think you know, we may not quite be at that tipping point yet, but it really can't last too long before people are seeing the real damage that this does to young people and their families. And then the tide hopefully will start to turn. AJ, one uh, final question about this subject. You just noted that you asked the question, rather, why categorize healthcare and sports by sex at all? Yes, that was one of the authors in the column that I helped manage. I have been persuaded by some of the uh, political scientists that certainly categorizing sports by sex or gender, either one, is limited. That assumes that all boys are stronger than all girls in all sports, which we all know is absolutely ridiculous. Whatever it is you have to do to qualify for the team, why say you can get on that field or that ice rink or whatever it might be, only if you are X gender. Why not let everybody compete together? Some of the reasoning used in the anti-trans sports bills in these legislatures is about protecting girls' sports. And you know that that is, um, let's say, nonsense. Because if they really wanted to protect girls' and women's rights to play sports, wouldn't they be funding those? Wouldn't they be advocating for equal pay? Maybe if they wanted to protect women from predations by, in their minds, you know, imaginary men, they would be working against sexual assault. There are a lot of things you can do to make women's lives stronger and better. And ruling out the ability for these young people to compete and the appropriate team is not the thing to do. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Grace Sterling Stowell, Executive Director of Bagley, E.J. Graff, Journalist and Managing Editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post, and Jansen Wu, Executive Director of GLAD, GLBTQ, Legal Advocates and Defenders. Let me go to this poll, because... And some of the the legislation that we just talked about has as its basis religious reasoning. We shouldn't be doing this because it's against faith, it's against certain religions, particularly some evangelical folks are are leaning in that direction. But here comes this new poll that was done by the Public Religion Research Institute. Um, It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan group, and they looked at major religious groups and found out that 75% of people of faith support. LGBTQ plus 
protections, meaning they are in favor of anti-bias protections, be they law or however it shows up. That seems to be a high number, Grace. Well, absolutely. And I think for me, what this poll demonstrates is that how out of touch these politicians are with the reality of, of the people in this country, that the majority of people in this country support LGBTQ equality. And and especially among younger people, but even across the spectrum. And so, uh, you know, these anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ, you know, legislative efforts or other policies are really not representing the majority of the country. And I think that's part of why, in fact, they're they're being raised because they represent a minority view, and and they're trying to sort of hang on to something that really that really just doesn't represent what most people believe anymore. And yet, um, when there was great discussion of the Equality Act, which is pending in Congress right now, religious opposition was an ongoing theme, Jansen. That's right. So again, we're seeing the extreme religious right trying to create a political wedge issue where it doesn't exist. As you and Grace have said, the majority of people of faith support non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people. And the vast majority of LGBTQ people support and cherish religious freedom because so many LGBTQ people are also people of faith. The Equality Act is legislation that's pending in Congress and specifically in the Senate and discrimination against youth based upon whether you're gay or transgender in employment, in housing, in restaurants and businesses, in credit, in healthcare. These are really basic life functions that people need to be able to access in order to live their lives. And most people understand that and they support those types of protections. The other big issue that's coming up that's related to this, which I just wanted to flag, is that the Supreme Court may issue a decision any day now in the Fulton versus City of Philadelphia case. And that's a case where Catholic Social Services lost their contract to provide foster care placement services for the City of Philadelphia because they refused to place children with same-sex couples. And that question is now at the U.S. Supreme Court as to whether or not they have a constitutional right to discriminate against LGBTQ foster parents. And I think this is really important, again, too, because there was one other agency that contracted with the city of Philadelphia that had previously not placed foster children with LGBTQ parents. And they actually just recently changed their policy. Mm. So we're going to see you know, the extreme religious right and that opposition became increasingly isolated. And the challenge is how do we move those elected officials for whom that very small part of their political base is, you know, a large part of their own base? Interesting. EJ? I think what what Jensen just said at the end there is key. Our elected officials are not attending to all citizens at all times. They're attending to their own base, right? So there can be a reason that 80% of the country supports some kind of gun regulation, and yet there's no movement in Congress. It's the same reason that 75% of people of faith say they support LGBTQ equality, and yet we're not going to get any movement in the Senate. It depends on who those representatives or senators think is most likely to vote for or against them based on that particular issue or fund or not fund them based on that particular issue. And it tells you something about who the Republican Party is beholden to that Republican officials are still opposed. It's the extreme religious Mm -hmm. right. You know, I always try to weigh 
both the import of these representational, seems historic moments in spaces like government, but also in pop culture. And so the former Bachelor, that would be ABC's Bachelor star, and people may know that that's a show where the guy comes on and does this horrible picking of all these women to allegedly become his bride. Well, the former Bachelor, Colton, came out as gay. Here he is on Good Morning America. I'm gay, and I came to terms with that earlier this year and have been processing it. I'm like the happiest and healthiest I've ever been in my life, and that means the world to me. Now, I just asked you all the question is, does this matter? Is this a big deal? I mean, aside from the fact that he was living, obviously, a lie while he was being The Bachelor, but is it a big deal? I think it's a huge deal, but not maybe for the reasons that you might think, uh, mm-hmm. because it really lifts up the veil of <laughs> of The Bachelor and yeah. exposing it for what it is, which is, you know, not just farcical, but damaging, I think. Now, imagine Colton, I would imagine him being anguished on the show, you know, struggling with sexuality, being closeted, and yet being the face of heteronormativity to millions and millions of viewers. And now think about the impact that, you know, that heteronormative culture that is so prevalent in our media has on young people who are struggling with their sexuality. So if I had been Roberts who interviewed him, I would have asked him, like, what was your experience like being on The Bachelor and struggling with your sexuality? And how do you imagine that could have impacted young gay kids across the nation? I hope the media can focus more on that question as opposed to his own internal struggle, which, of course, is you know important and compelling, but it's not the full story. I read it from my stance as you just never know. And so you can make assumptions about people. Now, of course, he lied, but, but Grace, you can make assumptions about people and you just be wrong. Well, right. And it, it's such a reminder that, you know, as much as we have made you know, such great strides in terms of LGBTQ equality, you know, in so many ways over the decades that even in 2021, you know, even even now, it can still be difficult to come out and be who you are and affirm your identity. And so I, I, you know, I just, even that little snippet that you, that clip, I was just thinking, oh, wow, you know, what, what, what kind of struggle must he have gone through? Mm-hmm. And he's coming, sort of coming out now and affirming that and, and choosing to live authentically. And that just, that's always a good thing. And, you know, if it does challenge people's assumptions, that's great, whether it's challenging their assumptions around what what gay men look like and or, uh, you know, just by looking at people or even, you know, people on TV, you just never know. And so, I, you know, for me, I just think it's great that he's able to, to come out now and do that. And we should a reminder that it still can be challenging even now. EJ. What really struck me about it, not so much the fact that he was on The Bachelor, although it does shows how ridiculous that show is, but that he, he no one has even talked about him being a former pro football player. I mean, oh, that is I didn't of, know that. That's one of the bastions of uh, not even heteronormativity. It's macho maleness. So <laughs> it's very hard for men in sports to come out as gay, much unlike it is for women in sports, obviously, where it's it's more consonant with how a lesbian is supposed to be, right? You're supposed to be interested in sports, which is why I'm a failed lesbian myself. Um, <laughs> but um, gay men are supposed to be over on the fashion shows, right? They're not supposed to be on the sports show. So I'm sure that helped keep him in the closet because he was um, the model of a good heterosexual boy. I did not know that about him. 
I want to end with this piece about the lesbian bar project. The bars are going away, and this is it's a cultural piece that could be missing. Here's a PSA released by the Lesbian Bar Project highlighting the significance of lesbian-centric spaces. I remember how her body moved on the dance floor. The king of the pool table, butch and beautiful. I remember being excited for the weekend. It was my playground, my family. I remember the lost spaces. You know, EJ, I think we hear a fair amount now in our pop culture setting about gay bars, but we don't hear a lot, or at least I don't, about lesbian bars. Lesbian bars have been dying for as long as I can remember. Women have less disposable income than men, right? So there's less money to spend on alcohol. And lesbians, we do have this tendency to pair off really quickly, and so there's less going to meet people at a bar. There's also been, over the years, this incredible expansion of ways to meet gay people, where Mm. I remember coming out and going to this hole-in-the-wall gay bar in Columbus, Ohio, which was two hours from where I was going to college. And God, you could feel the sticky, smelly beer on your shoe soles. It was it was a horrible place, and it was a dangerous place to walk out of. You never wanted to walk out on your own. So there are a lot more places to meet people today. The sober movement has taken a lot of people away from the bars. If you want to go hiking, you can find people online. I think there are a lot of reasons that lesbian bars are disappearing. And Leah Delaria, who was the voice of that PSA, she's also right. There's something lost, and it it was a wonderful place to be. But if it's not as needed, then it's not the place I'm going to put my worry. Well, the pandemic has threatened a lot of them across the way, and the Lesbian Bar Project is trying to save some of them for the culture and the history, Grace. They do have a cultural, historic place in America. It's quite American in some ways. So it would be a loss if all of them go. Well, absolutely. And, you know, and I'm thinking way back in the 70s and, you know, this wasn't long after Stonewall, you know, that first decade after Stonewall and and the bars for men and women and all of us who identified anywhere in the LGBTQ spectrum, they were the place to go. And here in Boston, there was a whole network of of bars. But even then, the bars that were specific for lesbians were just a handful uh, compared to the number for gay men. And uh, and of course, for those of us who identified as trans or or were too much on the femme side, you know there were pla- there were very few places for us as well, or, or certainly places where we were welcomed. But it was how we socialized, and it was where we found community and connection and relationships and friendships and and everything else. And uh, over time, the very success of the movement has meant that there's many more opportunities to to meet in many different ways. And then, of course, the internet in you know the late '90s really move that even further so that there are just many more opportunities now. So bars and clubs as a whole have been in decline. And since women's uh, bars were fewer in the first place, they're really going away. And, and that is a loss. There's absolutely a loss for the community that I remember back in the day, even though, of course, we've gained so much as well. And, and young people coming out now certainly have many more options and opportunities than ever before. So it's, it's a net gain, but, but it's also a loss of part of our history. Jansen? I'm not sure the LGBTQ movement would look the same 
if it were not for the place and the role that bars had in our social community and political development, um, as, as Grace was pointing out. Um, and, you know, Stonewall is an, is an obvious example, but I mean, this is where we built community. This is how we developed a political identity. Um, and I'm very happy that there are alternative spaces, particularly for the sober community to go now. But, you know, in many ways, bar culture for many folks in the LGBTQ community were sanctuaries. And I remember the shootings at the Pulse nightclub five years ago now and how devastating that was because these were our safe spaces. And so it is sad to see them go. And I will just end by paying homage to my favorite lesbian bar in San Francisco, the Lexington, which also closed during the pandemic. Oh, wow. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. And I thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Callie. Thank you. Grace Sterling Stoll is the executive director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, or Bagley. E.J. Graff is a journalist, author, and managing editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. And Jansen Wu, executive director of GLAD, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Coming up, Asian representation in this year's Academy Award nominations is historic in what some are calling the most Oscar nominees of color ever. Will the nominees become winners tonight? Is this an important shift or a pandemic fluke? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. It's been five years since April Rain kicked off the Oscar So White campaign, calling out the Academy Awards about overlooking top professionals of color in the entertainment industry. But tonight's award ceremony may turn out to be a banner year for long-hoped-for representation, including Stephen Young, the first-ever Asian-American nominated for Best Actor, and Chloe Zhao, the first Asian woman nominated for Best Director. And they are two among other nominees of color. Joining me remotely, Jenny Korn from near Birmingham. She is a research affiliate and founder and the coordinator of the Race, Tech, and Media Working Group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Welcome back, Jenny. Thank you for having me. Also with me, Elena Kreef, Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Wellesley College. She specializes in Asian American visual history in photography, film, and popular culture. Hello, Elena. Hi, Callie. Great to be here. I'm so glad to have you back as well. Well, let's dive right in. These are the most nominations, and I'm focusing on Asians and Asian Americans in this conversation in the context of many other nominees of color, because it's just been historic. It's a small number, but it's an historic number of of nominees. Um, And I wanted to get y'all's take about that from the beginning. What do you think is the most important takeaway about the increase in nominations for Asians across the board, not just in acting, as we'll talk about later? Elena? Well, I think that this is the Oscars. I'm going to call this Pandemic Oscars 2021 because the leap between Oscar So White 2016 and 2021 is amazing. We are seeing 
an explosion and an acknowledgement of incredible talent across all of the categories. Best director, actors, actresses, screenplays. It's not just one token Asian American performer or artist this year, but it's an explosion across the board. Jenny? Yeah, I'm going to call this better Asian diversity. I am happy to see that there are Asians, um, not just in the acting roles, but also behind the camera, uh, which is important. Um, also in terms of writing our own stories, centering our experiences. Uh, and I'm very grateful that these movies are getting attention all the way to be nominated for um, an Academy Award. And I am excited to see what happens. All right. Well, let's listen to a trailer for Minari, which is up for six Oscar nominations. You're here with us for the first time. Please stand. What a beautiful family. Glad you're here. How's your daddy like that new farm? He growing things good, doing things right. Yes. But I don't like grandma. Grandma smells like Korea. Well, I can't say enough about the fine acting and the script and everything about Minari. I just love this movie, so I'll just mm-hmm. be biased about it. It's uh, <laughs> set in Arkansas in the 1980s. It's semi-autobiographical by the director, his story, because his family moved to mm-hmm. Arkansas. And it's a quite simple story, Jenny. I share your enthusiasm for Minari. I think it is also an excellent movie. Uh, As a Southerner uh, from Alabama, I have to say that I was surprised that there wasn't more, I guess, more Southerness, to Mm. be honest with you. It's definitely a story about immigration. It's a story about becoming uh, more American. Um, it's a story about family, but the setting of Arkansas, it could be any state. So Arkansas was not, again, as a Southerner, so important to this story. There are other stories uh, similarly that are set in different settings, which are great. It's not California. It's not New York City. It's not the places where people tend to expect Asian representation. So I am glad that it's Arkansas. I just kind of wish there was more Southerness, I Southern accents even. I didn't hear that many, to be honest with you. Well, except from some of the white people when they go to church. You hear it then. Yes, the only time. Yes. You're right. And his regular yeah. worker, uh, the guy that works with Stephen Yun, who is the head of the household there. This is a Korean family resettled in Arkansas. Elena, what did you think? Oh, I loved Minari. It was one of my favorite films this year. And I love that all, it was also set in Arkansas. I love that there was a Korean story set in a rural setting close to the land, not in New York, not in not in Los Angeles. I also thought that this was one of the best films I've seen that deals obliquely with the Korean War. I thought that mm. the specter of the Korean War just really hovers in the background like a ghost. And it's there through the story of grandmother, and it's there through the story of Stephen Yoon's uh, white worker on the farm. You know, he's a veteran, and his love for the Korean people comes out of that out of that experience. And he also is clearly someone with some PTSD. I wasn't sure if that was love or guilt. Mm. I think we could definitely spend time wondering why he was trying to do so much to help. Um, that, that goes to what Elena is saying about the effects of the Korean War. I also like how the grandma said a line about things are more dangerous and more scary if they're hidden. Um, I thought that was a beautiful quote that she gave that speaks to everything, this particular sociocultural moment that we're in regarding 
racism, for example. We need to talk more about representation racially. We need to talk more about racial justice um, and racist practices, particularly with uh, Hollywood. So I, I think that one quote of hers is very representative of where we are right now with movies. I would agree with you. From Minari, there are two acting nominations, one for Stephen Yun, who plays the father, and the other for mm-hmm. Yun Yu Jung. She played the grandmother yes. in the film. Mm-hmm. I want you to listen to her reaction to the public reception of Minari after she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I was really surprised because we thought we are making Korean immigrant story, a Korean story. But all the audience was all Caucasian and they cried and they laughed. You think we are different people, but we are, after all, the same human being. We all have a grandmother and we all have a parent. I wanted to play that because it brings up an issue that Jane Hugh raised in a piece in The Ringer, which is about the story and the movie being sold and appreciated by many for its quote-unquote universality. But she argued for not, I'll use the word whitewashing, that's not what she said, she said it differently, the cultural specificity of the story, which is really what makes a diverse offering, if you will. You want, of course, people to relate to it, but let's not overlook the very special parts of the story being told here. And I wondered how you two felt about it, Elena. I thought that Yoo Jung Yoon is maybe going to go down in film history as one of the best ever Asian grandmas in film because she's so <laughs> great. She breaks every trope that's out there mm-hmm. with her with her cussing, with her gambling, and and with that beautiful evolving relationship with the grandson. But I think that you know mm-hmm. she just she steals every scene that she's in, but she she defies any conventional expectation or stereotype about what you think you might have learned from Joy Luck Club and elder, and elder Asian women and grandmothers. But how do you feel about the universality versus the specificity? Well, I thought that grandmothers come in every single dimension and form. And I didn't think that she was contained within the trope of the Korean grandmother who comes from the mother country and emigrates. I thought that she's a breakthrough. You know, we have yet to see the full diversity of representation of what elder women look like. And anyone who has a grandmother, especially a grandmother who comes from someplace else, who's an an immigrant, can relate to this character. Mm. Um, Jenny? I think that the point about being specific about a culture and encouraging pride in that culture um, is a good one. I think when I look at the marketing, um, there's definitely mention that this is a Korean immigrant family. So at least they mention it. I think that that critique is actually stronger in another Asian movie that's uh, been nominated for Academy for Best Animated Film, Over the Moon. Mm. Um, if you look at the marketing for Over the Moon, they don't ever say Chinese movie. Hmm. They don't ever say this is a movie about Chinese culture. But they're talking about the Moon Festival. They're talking about moon cakes, all of the imagery, because, of course, it's, it is animated, so it's, you know, cartoons, all of those images are related to Chinese culture, but they don't mention um, Chinese specifically. They don't even mention Asian, uh, even broadly. And so I think it really speaks to your point that you're raising about when we want representation, how are we going to have representation if we're not going to talk about what we're representing, right? Like, right. Um, and so Over the Moon is, again, it's a beautiful film. It deals with death, death of a parent, which touches me very directly. Um, And again, there's a universality to that message, but it is from the beginning to the end set in a Chinese context, yet we don't ever 
no one says that in the, in the movie mm-hmm. and all the promotions also don't reference that. And that that's problematic to me. It really is. Just to give Jane Q credit, this is at the end of her piece, and her last line is, to find commonality in the lives of minorities might be progress, but not if it comes at the expense of the particularities through which real universality takes shape. So that was her point. She said, glad everybody comes to it however they come to it, but I don't want this smudged out as if it's just any story. It's a very specific story that has meaning. Let me play the trailer for Over the Moon so that we can continue this conversation. Here it is. It's nominated for Best Animated Feature. It's just a silly myth. It's not a silly myth. It's real. She's on the moon right now, waiting for her true love. Right, Papa? Uh. He used to believe in her. If Papa could only believe again. So there you have it, Jenny. I have to tell you, I didn't know that the content of it was about Chinese family traditions, fantasy, anything mm-hmm. until I looked it mm-hmm. up. <laughs> I mm-hmm. didn't know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. right? I think the strength of the film, again, is that it breaks with old tropes of how we see Asian families and women and grandmothers. One of the best, most moving, and maybe most Korean-specific, and yet also most universal scene is the one where grandma arrives and she's opening her suitcase and she's giving her daughter some home foods mm. wrapped in plastic bags. I think she's giving her anchovy and chili. Yes. And yep. and her daughter just, uh, there's almost no dialogue, but the daughter breaks down because of course, as someone who's, who's long, long removed from home, home is memory and it's also food. And anyone who ever has traveled especially overseas, you know what it's like to like miss, miss home cooking and miss comfort food. But that I thought was one of the most uh, culturally specific and at the same time universal quiet scenes. And just so that people understand, Minari refers to a kind of Korean watercress, which is like a, a bitter green. And the grandmother mm-hmm. character brought that as well, the seeds, and it grows in the film and has, and has special meaning because as director Lee Isaac Chang has said, and remember this is his semi-autobiographical story of his own, family. Uh, it grows very mm-hmm. strong in the second season. So this is a story about starting mm-hmm. over ultimately. And so the Minari represents that in a very symbolic and uh, beautiful way through this plant. It's also cool to see the um, contrast between how Minari grows without much tending. Mm. I mean, you know, spoiler alert, but she just kind of throws the seeds um, <laughs> next to the creek and they sprout like which is very much a contrast to how hard her son-in-law is working to to cultivate to toll that soul to make it fertile to have stuff actually grow out of it you know again in contrast to well here's some seed we found the right you know we just threw it right here next to this creek it wants to live even Mm -hmm. in this in the movie they say that it's easy and so I think there's, uh, again, a lot of symbolism here happening with what it's like. Do you, do you choose a life that's a little um, more expected uh, versus a life where you are always up against challenges? And of course, in the movie, we, we learn what it's like to, to have to decide between farming or family. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Jenny Korn, research affiliate and founder and coordinator of the Race, Tech, and Media Working Group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. And Elena Kreef, professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. She specializes in Asian American visual history in photography, film, and popular culture.
I want to move on to Nomad Land now. That's uh, Chloe Zhao's film, which has been mm-hmm. uh, nominated for six uh, nominations as well. And most mm-hmm. of them were earned by the director, <laughs> Chloe Yay. Zhao. This woman is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So yes. the piece is about, just briefly, people who travel in their vans around the country going from job to job or looking for work. So it's a kind of a community of nobads. And it's about one particular woman and how she became a part of this community. So let's first take a listen to the trailer. You are one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. I and they sometimes call you nomads. My mom says that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. So that's Nomadland. Just so people understand the phenomenon that is Chloe Zhao. She did the directing. She edited it. At first I thought maybe she directed the editor. No, she edited this film (laughs) herself, for which she is also um, nominated for an Oscar. She adapted the screenplay. I mean, this woman is just Mm -hmm. off the charts. Mm -hmm. And let me put it in another context. Since the awards began 93 years ago, only seven women have been nominated for Best Director. So Mm. she's the first Asian woman. The other woman most recently who got a Best Director Oscar was Catherine Bigelow, who is a white Mm -hmm. woman for her film Hurt Locker. And in the category this year is another white woman, Emerald Fennell, who's nominated for her Promising Young Woman. So it's a phenomenal Mm -hmm. film. Well, you know, I do believe the last time that we had a conversation around the Asian August phenomena, I do remember bringing up the name Chloe Zhao. You did. You did. You did. You did. did. Not to be all braggy or anything, but I've been watching (laughs) Chloe since her first independent film, Songs My Brothers Taught Me. And then, of course, The Writer. Those are her two indie films. And then uh, Nomadland. I have always been saying, I still say, she's a genius director, uh, storyteller. She is at her best when she's taking the substance from from the non-professional actors that she works with or a book like No Man Lad, on which it's based. And then she carves that into stories uh, suited for her camera work. And, and uh, But she's a master storyteller. Nomadland follows the same logic of storytelling that we've seen in her two earlier films. And there's no director right now who knows how to film an American landscape like Chloe Zhao. I love that mm-hmm. she films in the Badlands and other, other national parks, but she understands the relationship of, of people to place. Uh, Jenny. I also enjoyed this movie. I would like to bring up what expectations and responsibilities does a director of color have? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to have a racial consciousness and not have that necessarily or visibly or um, significantly be reflected in your work? And the reason I bring this up is because she definitely is aware of her upbringing. As some of y'all might know, there was uh, some controversy that occurred because she made a comment that was posted on online social media several years ago. Uh, She's born in China and she said um, something akin to I'm used to lies because of where I grew up. Mm. And so the government did not take kindly to that. Um, so she, is, she has a political consciousness. Um, she also got into a little bit of hot water because more recently, just last year, she was misquoted. What was originally sent out was that she had said in an interview, again, born in China, that the U.S. is now my country. Yeah. And in fact, she actually said the U.S. is not my country. So one letter 
got you know really got her into trouble. But my my overall question goes back to critical race consciousness, social justice. How does race? How should race play into um, expectations about a director of color, particularly a, a woman director of color? For me, I know that this movie Nomadland starts off with Amazon. There was not any critique of Amazon's practices to their employees, and we all know that at the very least it's problematic the way that Amazon treats their, their employees. Um, so I, I was surprised that there was no light on that. I understand that she probably didn't want to do that because she's actually the only person, if I read correctly, to have access to an actual Amazon warehouse. And so I'm sure there were costs to that. But again, the question mm -hmm. is, how should race inform her work? I bet, and I'm not going to speak for her, that she adapted this from a book. And I bet she would mm -hmm. argue that wasn't in the book, so that's where I'm going. But to your larger question, I just want to point out that Stephen Young has said he's wary about being defined as an Asian-American Oscar, concerned that he may be, his words, being put in a weird box that he'll have to crawl out of. He is very prideful mm. about who he is, he says, but he just is worried about that. So there's a lot of this working, Elena. What do you say? Well, I think Jenny raises a fascinating question around what I've always called the burden of representation that artists of color, that people of color carry particularly on their backs, you know, and that what are our expectations for artists of color in the work that they create, the work that they participate in. What I've, I've always been fascinated with Chloe Zhao's earlier works because she is one of the few directors who filmed on the Pine Ridge Lakota Reservation in South Dakota. And she told stories based on uh, local Lakota ranchers and, and rodeo riders. But she her first two films deal with, with Pine Ridge uh, Native American stories. So I found it interesting that Nomadland uses the same technique that we've seen in her earlier work, which is pulling stories, shaping stories out of material or out of her non-professional actors' lives. But Nomadland really chronicles mostly white, not exclusively white, but mostly white travelers, people who live in their vans and travel uh, for seasonal employment or to live to live a very alternative type of life. And I thought, how interesting that this this Chinese filmmaker who listened, who, she grew up in Britain, she went to NYU, uh, but she's she's telling white stories. But again, mm -hmm. thinking about, well, who who carries that burden of representation? Do we expect directors of color to tell stories about their own communities. We never hold white artists, white directors to account in the same way. And this may be something I wonder is that's coming around to the Asian and, and uh, artists of Asian heritage having to face this in the Oscar space, because it's certainly something that African-Americans have had to. And as it turns yep. out this year, the nominations connected to Black folks who are nominated for acting nods and also the films and the behind the scenes and the stories are all about African-American history, yep. so, <laughs> African-American culture. All right. So here's something that uh, Bob Mandalo, I don't know if you know his work. He works for NPR. And I thought he did a very thoughtful piece talking about the well-touted at this point historic diversity of the nominations across the board of people of color, including, as we've been discussing, Asians and Asian-Americans, had to do directly with the pandemic and money that there were no blockbusters uh, put out on streaming because those directors, mostly white, as he noticed, had enough clout to say, do not stream my very expensive movie. So the other directors, like a Chloe Zhao and uh, Mr. Chang of uh, Minari, and we could go on with some of the other films by uh, African-Americans, did not have that clout. 
So their films were streamed at a great loss to the studios, but great visibility (laughs) because there was more space. Mm -hmm. Wonder uh, Mm -hmm. how you react to that. So most of these movies that have been nominated are available on streaming services. So if you happen to already have a subscription to Amazon Prime or to Netflix, you have access uh, built in already with your monthly fee uh, to these movies. One movie in particular that we started off with was Minari. Minari costs a lot of money relative to the already uh, available movies that are on streaming services. And I do think that that hurts the movie's ability to reach a wider audience um, because who is going to actually shell out extra money on top of all of these services that we most of us either had before or definitely decided to pay into during the pandemic? But Elena, it turns out to work out better for these smaller films because since they were not crowded out by the blockbusters, even the limited audience saw more of them. Right, exactly. This is why I'm I'm calling this year hashtag pandemic Oscars. This is the first time that most of us watched all of these films on tiny screens. And for most of us, we watched it as a solo experience. And there was a democratizing of what we watched and how we watched across all these various platforms. In some of the big blockbuster films that were ready to be released this past year got pushed forward. They'll come out later this summer, 2021. Uh, I'm thinking about John Chu, the director of Crazy Rich Asians. You know, he was at the helm for the the Latino musical blockbuster In the Heights, Lin-Manuel Miranda's film. We were hoping to see that this year, but it it got delayed because of the pandemic. And I was thinking also about the ways in which Latinos have been really shortchanged in 2021. Their presence is almost, it's not entirely erased, but certainly close. Yeah, very close. Mm-hmm. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, okay, mm-hmm. we have we have In the Heights, we have Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story. All that's going to come out much later, and will get considered hopefully in next year, twenty twenty two, by the um, in the award circuit. But I do find it interesting that whether films came out on Netflix, Amazon, or the big companies, they were all democratized in a way. And those of us who've been following and watching films, we've had a very strange year of, of easier access and we're what, and able to watch everything all at once. So I think that's really helped to diversify the field in a, in a new and dramatic way. And for me, I, I hope that we're not going to go backwards. Let me just uh, conclude this way. Uh, I don't want to leave out Riz Ahmed, who is nominated in the Best Actor category for Sound of Metal. It's an amazing uh, small yes. film again. Mm-hmm. And I'm raising this because I just want to leave you with these stats. Only two Asian men have been nominated before and mm-hmm. won. Yul Brenner in Best Actor. He won in 1956 for The King and I. Ben Kingsley won for Gandhi. Mm-hmm. That was a 1982 film. Only one mm. woman of Asian heritage. She was in the supporting actress, Miyoshi Yumeki, and she mm. won it for Sayonara in 1957. So Ooh. Elena just said, you'd like to see if progress has been made. So my final question to the both of you, you both predicted that crazy rich Asians would break it open in ways mm-hmm. that had not been seen before in terms of representation in this arena. Did it do it? We definitely have... Asians in uh, a larger number of roles in terms of not just acting again, but also directing. And that's always a good sign because we're we're making progress. But again, I have said this before, this is I think our, our fourth year. I would love to see more Southeast Asian representation. Um, We're getting South Asian, we're getting East Asian. Uh, We did, there was a movie called Yellow Rose um, that focused on um, undocumented Filipino 
family. Uh, that movie did not garner Oscar attention, but at least it got made. But again, that movie set in Texas, so we now have two, at least two movies this year, uh, set in the South. Don't portray Asians with a Southern accent like mine. And I've been saying this for four years. We're out here. There are Asians who grew up in the South, who call the South home, who sound like this, and we want to be represented too. I'm in theater. Y'all need an actress. Let us just know. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know why we don't have a movie yet um, that shows more Southerness tied directly to Asian identity. In addition, and I've said this for four years too, I would like more movies that show Asian women as activists, in particular, I would like to see more movies that show interracial solidarity with Asian women as well with uh, Black Latino communities, Indigenous communities. So I'm still waiting, waiting for, for more greater representation. How about you, Elena? Did Crazy Rich Asians break it open? Well, I remember that conversation and I'm going to say, you know what? Crazy Rich Asians did its job in 2018. Things are looking really good for Chloe's out. I hope she sweeps in every single category that she was nominated for. And I think that she that she soundly deserves. I want to see her win Best Director. You know, I, I think this is going to be her year. I also want to say, uh, given the other Asian uh, Asian men and women uh, who've garnered Oscars in acting categories over the years, Miyoshi Umeki for Sayonara, I want to say that it's been a weird journey to think of Asian men who've been in this category, if we're going from Yul Brynner to Steve Yoon, that is a weird trajectory. Mm. So, mm. but I love Steve Yoon. And my favorite part of 2021 was seeing the birth of Steve Yoon, everyone's favorite character from The Walking Dead, reborn as a movie star. How gratifying has that been? <laughs> I think it's pretty <laughs> gratifying on a lot of levels. I want to thank you two for joining me for this very fun conversation. Thank you, Callie and Jenny. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Jenny Korn is a research affiliate and founder and coordinator of the Race, Tech, and Media Working Group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Elena Kreef is a professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Wes Martin and engineered by Dave Goodman. Angela Yang is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.